Hello and welcome to Take My Advice. I'm not using it. My name is Ollie Henderson and this week, back by popular demand, I'll be recalling a couple of newsletters that I wrote in April. It's a future work-life special. The first newsletter touches on the subject of MPS or Net Promoter Score, while the second discusses speaking about yourself in the third person. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy. Future Work Life number 38, written on April the 25th. Not proving strictly useful. Sometimes it takes a while to change your mind about something that you've not only put into practice, but broadcast to the world. Not on this occasion, though. It only took Will Page about two minutes to convince me that NPS or Net Promoter Score is fundamentally flawed. Last week, I spent a wonderful hour chatting to Page until recently Spotify's chief economist and my first guest of the most recent series of the podcast. We discussed all sorts, including the economics of the music business, the different life cycles of scaling a company, Straight No Chaser magazine, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and the danger of NPS. I've written plenty about the surface level issues within organisations related to work-life design and well-being. See my recent articles about burnout and pacing yourself, for example. However, the primary obstacle to fixing problems like these remains for many companies defining good work. In January, I attempted to explain how businesses could improve their approach to flexible work with one suggestion involving using the now infamous MPS score to measure customer and employee experience. So what's the issue? As Will Page wrote in his new book, Tarzan Economics, the NPS score ticks all the boxes of a grab-and-go business metric as it's easy to measure and even easier to grasp at a glance, which makes it very useful when you're looking to bolster egos and play the other three-letter acronym game, CYA, cover your ass. That's common in hierarchical organisational turf wars. By this point, you shouldn't be surprised to learn that a single number that claims to accurately represent the health of an organisation is going to cause more problems than it solves. Yet, NPS fosters the same quantification fallacy of encouraging leaders to ask no further questions, which risks casualties. End quote. The big issues here relate to context and trust. In an attempt at simplicity, NPS represents so narrow a view on customer sentiment that it's essentially worthless. It's impossible to capture such a range of human psychology and behaviour in a single number and provides little to no context into the customer's experience. Plus, Will Page argues that its ubiquity means we, as customers, understand how to game the system responding at either end of the 11-point scale to ensure we factor in the calculation. In short, you can't trust it to tell you anything useful. Trust remains a constant challenge for anyone attempting to use data to make decisions in businesses. To refer back to the articles on the evolution of flexible work once more, this is why the oft-misquoted Peter Drucker said, what gets measured gets managed, even when it's pointless to measure and manage it, and even if it harms the purpose of the organisation to do so. In this respect, even worse than not collecting data is collecting it entirely wrongly. Reflecting on the subject over the past few days, along with reading a timely anecdote in Tim Harford's book, triggered a recurrence of my recently suppressed penchant for German cultural references, which any original subscribers to Future Work Life will remember from its early days. In the form on this occasion of thermometers, armpits and a hirsute 19th century scientist from Baden-Württemberg. For 18 years, Dr. Karl Wunderlich collected over a million body temperature measurements taken from more than 25,000 patients. A million measurements recorded and filed on paper. 
This incredible effort led to his discovery that the average body temperature for humans is 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. And this became conventional wisdom, which seems entirely fair given the sheer scale of the undertaking. The thing is, Wunderlich was wrong. Our bodies are in fact about half a degree cooler than 98.6 degrees. But it took us almost a century to realise it. So the question is, for a data set so large, how did he get it so wrong? Upon recent inspection of the thermometers, which now live in a medical museum, we found that they were miscalibrated by around 4 degrees Fahrenheit. But this wasn't the only mistake. While there are a few parts of the body we now consider an accurate reflection of our body's temperature, armpits are not one of them. And guess where Wunderlich always stuck his thermometers? The lesson here, of course, is that unless you collect data accurately, you can't trust what it's telling you. In the absence of NPS, how should we think about measurement, whether it relates to customer or employee experience, ENPS? As I said in the last newsletter, there isn't a simple answer. As food for thought, though, perhaps we could contemplate a counterweight to big data, and as Drucker alluded to, the problem of quantification bias. In Tarzan Economics, Will Page introduces the work of Trisha Wang, a tech ethnographer who has reframed this by introducing a new term to illustrate why people are the data and not the metrics they produce. And I quote, Thick data is at the opposite end of the spectrum and aims to capture the most direct, unmediated data from humans in the full context of their emotions and stories by, wait for it, meeting them. This is such a wonderful phrase to counter the hype around big data. On one side, we've got snake oil merchants selling promises based on millions of points of data. On the other side, we've got deep, patient observations of real humans listening and talking to each other. Good point, well made. Future work life number 39, written on April the 29th, 2021. Ollie, this newsletter is the best thing you've ever written. First, the definition of iliism. Iliism is the act of referring to oneself in the third person instead of first person. Iliism is sometimes used in literature as a stylistic device in real life usage. Iliism can reflect a number of different stylistic intentions or involuntary circumstances. Speaking about yourself in the third person, it's the ultimate sign of narcissism and self-grandeur, isn't it? I certainly find it incredibly amusing when I hear people talking in this way, but does it say something about the individual beyond just that they have a high opinion of themselves? There are plenty of historical examples of Iliism, not least Julius Caesar. I draw many of my references from the sporting world, though, so there are a couple of stars who jump out at me, Zlatan Ibrahimovic and LeBron James. Zlatan Ibrahimovic, if you're not familiar with him, is Sweden's best ever footballer. Not my words, but the words of the man himself. And I quote, I'm probably the best Swedish player in history. What I've done, no one has done. Am I arrogant? It doesn't matter. I'm the best. End quote. He also once told the king and queen of Sweden, now take care of Sweden until I return. Zlatan is one of football's foremost proponents of Iliism, and believe me, there's no shortage from Pelé to Maradona, Lothar Matthias to Eric Cantona. Given that these names represent some of the game's greatest players, you might conclude that this is a symptom of the fame and idolisation that comes with transcending the world's most popular sport. Yet even among the five players I've mentioned, their personalities differ wildly. For example, in Zlatan's case, you can sense a large dollop of irony in many of his famous quotes. Take this for example, and I quote, I don't think that you can score as spectacular a goal as those of Zlatan in a video game, even though these games are very realistic these days, end quote. On receiving an invitation for a trial at Arsenal from legendary manager Arsene Wenger as a 17-year-old, his response was, 
because Latan doesn't do auditions. And when asked what he'd bought his partner for her upcoming birthday, he responded, nothing. She already has Latan. So is this a simple case of self-aggrandizement or is it something else? Zlatan is a wind-up merchant and provocateur, hence his recent spat with LeBron James, basketball superstar and increasingly a much-listened-to commentator on social issues. Zlatan advised him to focus on unifying rather than dividing through his public statements. Now, this isn't a simple area on which to assert an opinion, of course. During the week of writing, there was controversy over Basecamp's decision to ban political discourse within their internal platform on company meetings, for example. However, one can't help but feel that Zlatan was indulging in some gentle prodding in the interest of publicity and mischievousness. LeBron is, of course, a famous Iliast himself, with observations such as, I wanted to do what was best for LeBron James, and what LeBron James was going to do to make him happy. In his case, though, there is always a sense that every decision made is well considered and in the interest only of improving his ability to be successful. Assuming this is true, the research backs up his approach. Using your own name and other non-first person pronouns can help promote self-control and wise reasoning. There's just no need to say it in public or out loud at all. Ethan Cross runs the Emotion and Self-Control Lab at the University of Michigan. What a great name for a department. And is the author of the book, Chatter, the voice in our head, why it matters and how to harness it. He's an expert on how to leverage self-talk, your internal dialogue, positively rather than falling victim to the negative impact of the voice in your head. The latter point is crucial here because typically it is the negative thoughts that tend to dominate. Even in good times, our inner critic rears its head, which is why we may often suffer from self-doubt and psychological patterns like imposter syndrome. Over the past year, though, Negative self-talk has become virulent for manifold reasons, contributing to a spike in mental health issues as clinical levels of depression and anxiety affect up to 30% of the population. While Cross makes very clear that it's not possible to rid the world entirely of depression and anxiety, it is possible to turn down the temperature a bit when it's running too high. The trick, according to Cross, is to utilise distant self-talk which is where realism comes in. Talking about yourself to yourself requires mentally stepping back and gaining perspective on an issue. The benefits are not just that it can help you calm down, it helps reframe problems that seem insurmountable and gives you more confidence. You might combine this with temporal distancing, which projects your thoughts to the future, separating yourself from all-consuming short-term worries. Again, the distance can help both dampen anxiety and help improve performance. Visualisation of success in this way is nothing new, but there are plenty of cynics out there, let's be honest. Yet, if you ask many top athletes like LeBron James, this approach is critical for his preparation. Now, I'm willing to try anything once, so as someone who isn't short of negative self-talk, I'm going to give it a go. Ollie, this newsletter is the best thing you've ever written. Until the next one, and the one after that. Hang on a minute, I just remember you're not supposed to say it out loud. Never mind, I'll remember that for next time. Thanks for listening. I'll see you here again soon.